Well, it's like we're a bat flying around a cave. This is a real roller coaster move as we fly down to the floor here. There's a great reveal. We're just down here. There's a passageway down there. Oh, wow. You wouldn't even know it's there, I think. And in front of us here is a uh, stalactite, stalactite that's joined into a column. Oh, wow. It's completely detached from the wall. So we're seeing the cave from angles that maybe no human has ever seen in person. Alright, so you probably know we're not really flying around a cave. It's not a show about caves, it's a show about di digital thi thinking, digital, so digital thing, thinking about Welcome to Think Digital, where every week I'm going to bring you stories from and about the digital age, and I'll ask the experts to give their insights. In this episode, we are visiting unique and creative visualizations and sonifications that people have made to represent very large data sets, also known as big data. On our way, we'll take a look at the giant underground robots that you can control with your mobile phones, and probably without even realizing it. And we go into space to look at how data visualizations help solve mysteries about our galaxy. Right now, I'd like to introduce you to my caving companion. My name's Ben Simons. Ben is a computer graphics and visual effects expert. He's been involved since the beginning. We had to represent an image as dots and asterisks. After university, I joined CSIRO. We were using video cameras to be able to try to see what was on the manufacturing line and make decisions for like cutting film or painting uh, cars, uh, using computers to create visual effects, mostly blood and zombies and clouds. I generated an LSD scene for taking Woodstock for Ang Lee. The main character takes LSD and has to imagine this whole crowd. And um, I came back to Australia to be head of visual effects on Happy Feet 2. That sounds like a cool job. Why would you give that up? Uh, because a cooler job came along. <laughs> so I'm the technical director of the UTS data arena. And that's where we are. We're not in a cave. We're in, in an, an arena. arena. A, a data, data arena. arena. Okay, it's not actually that big, but it can feel that big. These are 3D glasses um, that we'll wear. We'll just take a minute to power these on. Oh, wow. So it looks like we're on some kind of savanna or desert, just 360 degrees, like we're really there. And there's a sunrise, and the clouds are just shooting across the sky. You can see the trees blowing in the wind. It's all at high speed. Oh, <laughs> now we're at the beach somewhere. Is this in Sydney? Yeah, I, I, think that, I think this is down south. All of this is shot oh. in Australia, in Sydney. And the, ah, and the waves just crashed all over us. We're lost in the surf. The, uh, the UTS Data Arena is a full surround 3D stereo immersive experience. Um, it's kind of the next step beyond what you might see in Hoyts where you put on the glasses and you can see 3D stereo. Here in the Data Arena, the screen goes completely right around you, 360 degrees. Some pe people are calling it the Star Trek holodeck. If you're not familiar with Star Trek, the holodeck was an empty room in which the spaceship's crew could tell the computer to simulate just about any place or simulation that they wanted. Um, when it first appeared in Star Trek in the 90s, it was a very advanced depiction of virtual reality. This woodland pattern is quite popular, sir. Perhaps because it duplicates Earth so well. Coming here almost makes me feel human myself. I didn't believe these simulations could be this real. The rear wall, I can't see it. We're right next to it. Incredible. 
The weird thing is Star Trek's holodeck was in a square room. Now that I think about it, the square room, it doesn't make any sense. Ben's room's round, which makes way more sense. It's a continuous movie screen that joins up seamlessly at both ends. Even the door we came in is part of the movie screen. Computer, take us back to the cave. This is incredible. I've been to Wombian Caves and you don't get to see it from these kinds of angles. No, it's it's such a large data set that you really get to explore the cave. That's right, data set. Not only are we not in the caves, we're not even seeing photos or video of them. We're literally looking at data. It's not like the surround video of the desert or the beach I was looking at before. This is data, pure and simple. In fact, it's not even complex data. The only complex thing about it is that there's just so much of it. So I can hear you thinking, well, what the hell were you even laughing at? Uh, how can looking at data feel like riding a roller coaster? Even lots of data, especially lots of data. It sounds boring, but when Ben swiped his finger up and took us for a nosedive through the cave data, it actually made my stomach jump a little and give that little light feeling you get when you're on a roller coaster and you're about to go down a steep dive. It's a LiDAR scan of the Wombian Caves. Um, a LiDAR is like a laser radar. It sends out a laser beam and does um, time of flight, and when it, the beam hits something, you know how far away that point was by the time it took for the beam to hit the object. It's kind it's, of like sonar. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, but, but with a laser beam. And this LiDAR was produced by the CSIRO in Brisbane. Um, it's called the Zebedee. When you see this device, it's incredible. It's kind of like Ghostbusters. I mean, it's hard to believe it's a scientific instrument. It's on a big spring, and you've got a, a backpack, and, and it's sending out laser beams and recording the distances and surfaces of where everything is. The uh, LiDAR was attached to a drone. The drone was flown by Mark Lake here at UTSE Research. Uh, he borrowed the Zebedee, attached it to a drone, and flew it through the Wombian Caves for three hours. The drone can get right up into the parts where possibly you could climb, probably you wouldn't. So we're in a version of the Wombian Caves, again with incredible detail, but made up of lots of different coloured ping pong balls. The ping pong balls more sort of in front of us are green and then they darken as they sort of go away from us and it gives us a really good sense of depth. And we're zooming into the handrail right now and it's just made of these, well now they're like baseballs or or something. (laughs) <laughs> you're basically grabbing one right. from the middle of the room. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. So you can reach out and it's just like... It looks right like there, you're right? holding it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Look, that nearly yeah. felt like it was going to hit me in the face. That's crazy. Like, in a way that it doesn't even at the 3D... Sometimes you flinch and stuff at 3D movies, but this is sure. really like it's sure. like it's in your face because it's completely around you. So it, and it's quite convincing. Um, you know, it's in your periphery, uh, and this is the sense of immersion. Now, again, I'm flying through here, so mm-hmm. with this space navigator, you know, we can pick any point and uh, navigate and examine it. There's 22 million points. Every time we got a point, we put a sphere there. Um, if the light bounced away, we've coloured it red, like off the floor. If the light bounced back to us, like off that sign, it's green. Um, And there's 22 million points in this space. So a drone went into the caves, scanned it with lasers, and it's been recreated in this round cinema. Maybe you're thinking, is that really data? I mean, yeah, of course, in the sense that everything is probably data, it's data, but it's not like we were looking at an Excel spreadsheet. Well, actually, we pretty much were. 
If you can imagine an Excel spreadsheet with 22 million rows, one for each ping pong ball that made up the cave. But as I said earlier, this data is not complex. The only complex thing about it is that there is just so much of it. The spreadsheet would have 22 million rows, but how many columns would it have? Just six. We had XYZ, the position of the reflection, um, and we also have the angle of the reflection, which is the RGB, is the colouring. So if the light bounced back to us, we coloured it green. If the light bounced away, it's red. And essentially that's six channels of data, XYZ, RGB, and this is what we've done to represent it. It seems so simple, but it just the complexity of the, the entirety of it is just astounding. It's a strange feeling, like flying around <laughs> it in 3D. Right. It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of like being on a roller coaster. And the technology behind this simulation isn't just for caves. You could use it to simulate what it's like to swim on the ocean floor or to walk on Mars or go just about anywhere that a laser can go. But here's the best part. We're developing pipelines so that um, using open source software, uh, you can bring your data set in. Ben Simons, technical director of the UTS Data Arena. This is Think Digital, where we tell stories from and about the digital age. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. Stick around. We'll be going into space through the data arena in just a bit and finding out how the data arena has made discoveries for NASA. But first, we're heading back underground. Not into a cave, but to look at giant robots working underground, controlled by people's mobile phones. Who are these people who wield such immense power? Well, a lot of them are commuters, people on buses, some of them are on lunch break, some of them are lying in bed. You could be doing it right now. I don't know what you do with your time, your robots and your phones. I met up with Mal Booth in the large open foyer of the University of Technology Sydney's city campus. It was orientation week or something and there were students everywhere. We took the lift down several floors and walked through some large industrial looking loading station type areas. So it's, it's a large excavation through five floors of solid rock. Wow. Yeah, it really feels like we're in the bowels of the university. Yeah, well, this is a new We go through a security door and this is a huge archive. Yeah, it goes five stories down and they're just little kind of, like something out of coffin runner, yeah, yeah it does look like braid or they run because there are lots of metal coffin big, shaped metal sized bins, yeah. bins that just must go about 30 there's, 40 back there's 11,000 bins 11,808 bins to be precise and oh, they wow. they're all 2 foot by 4 foot long and they vary in height this is a live request that's just been made by students so what it should tell us on the screen now is um, what book has been requested and where it is in those sectors. So somebody's just typed yep. into the computer what they online, want? Online, yeah. And whereabouts is this person, do you know? Don't know, they could be anywhere. Anywhere in the world? Yeah, anywhere. You can do it on, on a mobile phone. A five-storey tall metal pylon moves several rows over. Meanwhile, some kind of robot forklift moves up or down to the right height and pulls one of the hundreds of coffins lining both sides of this enormous corridor. And there are six of these corridors side by side, uh, with six little touchscreen library checkout windows up the top. Um, 
looks like a robot assembly line yeah, for library books. Kind of, yeah. So they requested a book called The History of Contraception. <laughs> the crazy and amazing thing about this enormous library archive is that the books are stored almost at random. They've thrown the Dewey Decimal System out the window. The only criteria for a book being stored in a certain box is that it needs to be the right height to fit in that box. Family planning, although some of the books here are related to each other, the books are stored completely independent out of the night. I don't even know what that is. Completely independent of each other, so nothing like this is a book on domestic violence, legal responses. Um, so they're stored basically on spinal height, food security in Asia. So that it's nothing like what they'd be on the shelves. Declining population. No. The science of women. Mathematics. 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 Critical care nursing. And this confuses the shit out of the books. Ever since they've been disorganised in this way, they've been talking at one another in some kind of desperate attempt to get their bearings. Some are loud and some whisper and some are polite and others are frantic. Worry. I'm badly burnt. It's been a rather difficult morning. Really? I think I must be getting on. How are you liking the new labels? Oh, they are much noisy, bloody no So they are Ow. worth much money. Give it back to me. I haven't got a boyfriend. I'm very sorry. Maybe I noticed you. Noted your long hair. Loose waves. Alright, kids. We are good to go. All I can say is turn up on time in the future. Partido Popular. Partido Socialista Obrero Español. Sindicato Minero Asturiano. I beg your pardon. your language. Here we go. So that's the book. A history of contraception from antiquity to the present day. Procreation through the ages, from ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, the Christian West, the Middle Ages... And, and when the machine's done, it just puts the books back wherever there's space close by, and it remembers where it is for next time. A simple passage from ignorance to enlightenment. He marshals his evidence from demography, medicine, literature, to religious, family and women's history to show that... The system's gone from a, a visible order of books on a shelf um, to what seems to be chaos but is ordered by data. It can hold more than a million books. And we've got it roughly half full at the moment. So these systems are mainly used in industries like logistics, transport, retail warehousing. Warehouse workers can just type in an order. The trucks can just drive up and these pallets are automatically picked uh, on bigger systems than ours and then they're just loaded straight onto the trucks and they drive straight out of there. So... Bam! 3,000 cans of cola headed for Woolies in Toongabby. But ours is more of a smaller site um, that would be like a, an urgent spare parts storage facility for someone like Qantas would be more similar to ours where things are stored in bins and can be regularly picked just through the unique identifying descriptive data for each of the spare parts. So someone doesn't need to go looking for a bolt or a, a wing or something else like that. They can't really easily describe or find in a huge warehouse. They just enter the data, the descriptive data for it, and then these robotic cranes bring the bins or the, or the items to them. And you'll be sitting on a plane for less time at Mascot now than you would have years ago if that part had to be found by somebody who knew what they looked like. Oh, thank goodness for that. Yep. And it's not just heaps of time that these systems save, it's heaps of space. About 70% of the UTS library collection is archived in this place, which has left a lot of free space in the library where the shelves used to be. As you were walking the stairwell, you could hear their conversations. And I pray that I may forget those matters that with myself I too much discuss.
Die Planer wussten diese einzigartige industrielle Umgebung bei der Gestaltung des Untergeschosses in drei schon wohnen und arbeiten vor Künstler. This is Lisa Lee. We thought we made the the lawyers think because their their text was very dry, so we thought they are oh, they may they may want to spice it up a bit, and so we've got them singing opera. Elisa is one of the library's former artists in residence. She and her colleague Adam Hinshaw uh, sonified the underground collection. Books and items are organised in the bins according to spine height, as opposed to via subject matter. And we just found that fascinating. That meant that within a bin there could be uh, books from all different areas. In one bin, we found that there were 65 law journals, there were a couple of uh, pole oxygens, there were a couple of magazines on how to live your life as a sophisticated man. And so we started thinking about human social dynamics. So all these books are in there. The only thing they definitely have in common is their spine height. It's like being on an aeroplane and you're going to Hong Kong. The only thing you know you definitely have in common is that you're all going to Hong Kong or you're in a lifeboat, or speed dating even. Take that one out. Um. (laughs) (laughs) So we thought, well, what do these books talk about when we're not around? Do they embrace the opportunity to learn from each other? Do they stay in their little cliques and all the law journals just talk law and all the, you know, the two design magazines talk design? Or do they say, hey, let's, let's, you're different to me. Let's learn from each other. And do they, you know, and how do they speak? Are they, are they polite? Are they noisy? Do they listen to each other? Do they pause? Do they actually have a conversation? Or like in quite a few social situations, they just talk on top of each other. So many words to one say. There so was a much voice at the base of his skull. Oh, After his time was she must so die tonight. She must die tonight. Because I do not hope to leave. know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think. Because I shall not know. We transcribed parts from these books and journals and then we created conversations. So we turned the text into speech using these wonderful text-to-speech tools at the moment which allow you to record voices with personalities. I didn't realise that... So those are computers talking? They're computers talking. Text-to-speech has come a long way. So we set up conversations uh, based on you know, different parameters such as uh, this bin is going to be quite polite and listen to each other or this bin is very bossy and they just all want to be heard. It's too late, Mother, for you to know. When all books are digitised, then what we can do is create these conversations on the fly. So, for example, we may create a conversation between the books that are actually in use. 
and um, do that uh, conversion of text-to-speech on the fly. And Elisa and Adam didn't just sonify the data, they visualised it too. So what you're seeing here is a 3D model of the LRS system and it contains 11,808 bins. What we're seeing at the moment is a replay of the last four weeks. Now you can see catalogue cards of the books that are being requested which fly out from the bin in which they were contained and they fly out towards us so that's simulating being requested. If they fly in then they're being returned in this time frame you can see it's very busy and you can see very clearly that there's less activity at night time however there is still some activity at night time such as um, once there was somebody who borrowed who requested about six books on RFID about three in the morning on a Wednesday night or Wednesday morning. RFID stands for radio frequency identification Coincidentally, it happens to be the technology the library uses to scan all of their books and get hold of all this data in the first place. Each time a book is requested, a little colour chip flies down and adds to this colour map so you can see in one view, oh, there's been a lot of activity with social sciences today, for example. And late at night, the librarians would have their own fun requesting books. At night time, they could request a series of books or items with particular titles to, to write poetry. Elisa Lee, former UTS artist in residence there, uh, talking about the work she created in collaboration with her colleague, Adam Hinshaw. Are, are any libraries anywhere using this sort of system? Yeah, these, these are used predominantly in the States. They're very popular. So there's probably about 30 to 40, mostly university libraries that have these in the US and a couple of state archives. And then uh, out here, there's two of us. Uh, Macquarie University Library has one that was built a couple of years ahead of ours. Ours is the first that's totally underground and the first to use our radio frequency identification tagging of all the collections. Do you think in the future that we might see a shift more towards these sorts of libraries or, or the, the, uh, the collections? Yeah, I think, I think people are realising that for any major library like this, with um, we get about one and a half million visitors a year. Some of my colleagues in other libraries get more than that. That's a very large facility to maintain, to light, to heat, to, to clean. In those compact storage facilities, you can generally store the same size collection in a building as little as one-seventh the size for about a quarter of the cost. A major part of ours was the excavation, but the facility was less than $30 million. So to build a new library that size, um, is really you're really looking at four times that cost. This is Think Digital, where we tell stories from and about the information age. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. In this episode, we're looking at big data visualisation and sonification. We're looking at how to see lots of data at once without staring at spreadsheets for hours and hours. Just want to see it in one go, all around you if possible. Remember to touch it. Brace yourselves, because Ben Simons from the Data Arena is about to launch us into space. Oh wow, this is kind of like Space Odyssey. <laughs> So the building, that, that facade of the building that we're in is just opening up for us and there are lots of... So you can uh, hear the sound going around us? Yeah. And that's a train that just went across the harbour bridge in front of, above us. 
Oh, wow. We're standing up at Nelson's Point, and now everything's just gone Matrix again, and we're flying. <laughs> We've taken off. Oh, it feels really strange. There are birds around us and planes, constellations. Oh, wow. And the planes have, uh, have unique ID numbers, flight numbers. Air balloon, weather balloons, I guess. Yep, yep. So we're flying up through the atmosphere. And there's a satellite that's just zoomed past us. Few, a bunch of satellites with ID numbers. You can see that they're sort of the the kind of satellite activity beaming down to Earth, and we're flying around the globe. So here we have um, all the maps of all the airports, um, and so we're about to show. All, uh, all the flights that are occurring. Oh wow, oh, okay. So we can just see them all shooting out of Europe, New York, Japan, everywhere in the world to every different airport code all over the world. Just these little kind of shooting beams of light. And now it's the, the world at night. We're flying away. We can see every city sort of lit up and we're flying towards the sun. So there was an example of where the sound was behind you? Yeah. Yeah, I, it made me turn around, but oh, there's the sun. Now, some of the physicists have complained that uh, the sound there's no sound in space. No <laughs> they would say that. Incoming. And this is Jupiter, I think? Yeah. Zooming towards us, or we're zooming towards it. Narrowly missing it. And Saturn. I think we've shot to the outer edges of the Milky Way. Next, Ben loads a visualisation of millions of stars created using big data from the Spitzer Space Telescope. The Spitzer is like the Hubble Telescope. It's a, a satellite that's orbiting. One of the secrets about big data is it's really hard to get your hands on the data. You know, like Target, Kmart may have every transaction that they've ever made, but are they going to give it to you? NASA is one of the great groups that will hand out data. Uh, they have enormous data sets. We're looking for mazes that are young stars burning methanol. They're called mazes? Yeah, mazes. They're a little bit like lasers, um, but with an M. I guess it's microwave, right? The interesting thing is that most stars burn hydrogen, but what we're looking for are stars that are burning methanol. And here we are flying around this data set, and there we start to display the entire data set. Um, so now, now that we're down near zero, you really are seeing 36 million points. And these are all the stars that are burning hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the exciting things of when you get the data onto the screen, you start to see things. Um, and often they can be things that you weren't expecting to see. The long and short of this is these are needles in the haystack. So um, he here they are now. They're starting to, to appear. There's probably about 20 of them. But this is 20 out of 36 million stars. So we went back into the data set and, uh, to find where they are uh, so we can actually get the, the address of the star and the name of the star so we can know which one. So here we are. Um, what, this is a little bit like the matrix now, right? So what we've done, we've replaced every point with an index into the database. And so there's a million, million numbers. So it looks like all of the data points that were little 
starred dots before have all turned into seven digits yep. of code. You'll see right up the top here, that star, its ID is 0671363. But have a look at this one. See the 0667 and then the next three digits are messed up? It's like $4.9 or something. Right. It, it almost looks like, you know, how you see a blur when digits flip through on a screen and your eye can't quite catch them? Yeah, any other thoughts? Alien code. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? Me, hmm, let me think. <laughs> it's between... <sighs> there's duplicates. There's, there's two numbers on top of each other here. Uh, and this, this is uh, really important to know. Um, this is a case of one of those things of you didn't know that you didn't know. Um, and what this is showing is that in this big data set of 36 million stars, some of those entries refer to the same star. Right Now, when you're working with really large data sets, the problem is you have too much data. So to find out that there's duplicates is really good to know. Starting with 36 million stars, we actually discovered that there were only 11 million unique entries. And what's going on here is it's because we started with three, four hundred files, each of a hundred thousand stars, and we piled all those files together into one big file. What we hadn't realized is that the, the, the tiles overlap. And so stars that you find in one file appear again in the next file. What we've done here is I've taken you through the, the journey of actually how we found this. And we, it literally was a visual discovery. It didn't occur to anybody that there might be duplicates in here. It wasn't until we displayed it on the screen, got the data on the screen, that we suddenly went, uh-oh, <gasps> what's happening? So data visualization's a lot more, it's about a lot more than just making things look really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, and I hope you've enjoyed the first episode of Think Digital. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. Our theme music is by Nonima. This has been a collaboration between 2SER and UTS. We'll be on the air and podcasting every week. Talk to you later.